That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, our guest is Grammy-winning singer-songwriter William Salter, creative force behind classics like Where is the Love and Just the Two of Us. Just the two of us. We can make it if we try. Just the two of us. Just the two of us. Just the two of us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast. John Hughes is with us again today. John, how are you? I'm good, Rich. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. It's a beautiful day. We have a new year and we have new music coming out soon. What do we got that's high on your radar? I mean, here it is. Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules. It doesn't get any, but yeah, if you love this Dio era, this is for you. These two CD and two LP versions of the first Black Sabbath albums with Ronnie James Dio on vocals. They feature newly remastered audio along with rare and unreleased music. For example, Heaven and Hell Deluxe Edition has several bonus tracks that have never been released in North America, including versions of Children of the Sea and Die Young that were recorded live in 1980 in Hartford, Connecticut. Nice. The set concludes with live rarities like Neon Nights that originally appeared in 2007 on the Handmade Limited Edition collection, Black Sabbath Live at Hammersmith Odeon. The Mob Rules Deluxe Edition also boasts an expansive selection of rare and unreleased recordings, along with additional tracks from that Live at Hammersmith Odeon. This collection also includes a newly mixed version of The Mob Rules, and the cherry on top is an entire concert recorded in 1982 in Portland, Oregon. Highlights include performances of that Neon Nights, Heaven and Hell, and Voodoo. Both of these classic Sabbath albums will be re-released on March 5th. Right on. I'm really looking forward to these because I am a huge Ronnie James Dio Black Sabbath fan. I just think that once he joined the band, Tony Iommi really blossomed as a lead guitar player. And these, both these albums have so many great songs on them. I'm really looking forward to this. And it's great that they're available again. So uh, a cool one. Uh, yay us. <laughs> and vinyl. <laughs> yes. Uh, we're also, uh, Rhino is also honoring Black History Month with a series of high profile vinyl and digital releases all through the month of February. Classic albums from Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, Donny Hathaway, Lil' Kim, Curtis Mayfield, and a lot more will be released on limited edition colored vinyl every Friday of the month beginning on Friday, February 5th. Very cool. And we're going to start your ear off right with our Start Your Ear Off Right campaign that kicks off this week. Exclusive limited edition releases available throughout the month of January from Billy Joe plus Nora, 
Buffalo Springfield, The Cars, Curtis Mayfield, Danny Elfman, Dire Straits, Genesis, John Prine, Katie Lang, Talking Heads, and Talk Talk. Full details on these titles are available, and you can see a list of participating indie retailers that are selling them at rhino.com slash S-Y-E-O-R. That's rhino.com slash S-Y-E-O-R. If you have trouble remembering that, just remember that stands for Start Your Ear Off Right. Well, there's a lot of great titles in there and collectible. If you have some of those already, you might want to take a look anyway because we've got colored vinyl. And If you don't have a lot of those titles, now's a good time to pick them up. Support your local indie music retailers, people. And you know what happens if you don't grab it from your indie retailer, you're just going to pay double on eBay in three weeks. Come on, people. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Well, John, thank you so much. Good to be back. Good to talk to you. You too. We'll see you next time, Rich. Well, songwriter and producer William Bill Salter is our guest on today's Rhino podcast, and we talk with him about his 60-plus year career as a Grammy-winning artist who has worked with an incredible list of beloved singers and musicians, including Bill Withers, Roberta Flack, Harry Belafonte, and many more, as you'll soon hear. William Bill Salter, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. For inviting me. You have such a long, illustrious, and spectacular career. It's hard to know where to begin. So let's just start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Born in New York, Harlem Hospital, back in 1936, when the world was different than it is now. A little different, anyway. Yeah. Your first exposure to music, who were some of the artists that you fell in love with early, just as a fan? My um, musical career sort of basically started in coming out of elementary school, going into junior high school. And I got 100% on my musical aptitude test, which was news to me because all of a sudden it gave me a purpose and a meaning that I was more than just another kid on the block. So I went into a special music class. By the time I got there, the only instruments that were left that hadn't already been taken was the string bass. So <laughs> that was what it was. But I took that and I got from there to here. And then you went to New York City's prestigious High School of Performing Arts, didn't you? I did. I wound up there, yes. It was fantastic. When I went into my junior high school, which was in uh, Patrick Henry Junior High School, behind the Museum of the Natural History in New York, off Fifth Avenue. I went through that whole three-year course, but I was striving as a musician just because obviously music came natural to me. Yeah. So I learned a lot day by day, but I automatically had a lot in me. So that was a great experience. When I left junior high school, I took a test for performing arts and uh, I just made up something. (laughs) I just made up some kind of baseline or something like that. And as it turned out, maybe I was the only bass player that showed up for that semester to come into the school. So the door was wide open. They said, oh, come on in, you know. Sorry. Yeah. So while I was there, I was a member of the All City High School Orchestra for two, I think, two, two uh, semesters. But there again, through my two, three-year period, stint there, so to speak, I was the only string bass player that was officially on that instrument. There were a couple of other people who came along as their secondary instrument. My secondary instrument was the tuba. Also a bass instrument. Well, I had to stay in the same bass clef. You know? Sure. 
So you got a lot of time. You didn't sit on the bench much. No, no, I was pretty active. Actually, my uh, graduating year from performing arts, I don't remember how this happened, but it happened. I spent a weekend up in, in Canada, Sudbury, Canada, with Pete Seeger. Some kind of how I got, I navigated. Somebody said, come on, try to do this, do this. And, um, and uh, there's a spot for you here if you can do this. Obviously, I could do it because by that time, my whole musical intuition was wide open and reaching for any and everybody I could get to. So I spent the weekend up there with him, one of America's greatest folk singers. Yes. And I came came back home and everything was back to normal again. <laughs> it was uh, like going to a mountaintop and then coming right back down like overnight. That's exactly what it was. But that was my first professional experience. But you got a view of what it was like. That must have gave you some really critical perspective. That's got to be a huge boost of confidence for a young musician. I'm sure that it was. I won't say that it wasn't because, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm still basically a, a young man, generally a kid, so at that point. But again, it was something that came natural to me. So, you know, when something comes natural to you, you don't think of it as being something out of this world. It's a, a, a totally uh, super grandeur. That came later. And we'll get to that. Boy, I mean, there is so much. It's crazy. Growing up in New York City, you must have seen some incredible artists come through town to play. And of course, you know, up in Harlem, we all know about the Apollo Theater and all these other great venues, everything that was going on down in Greenwich Village and the Fillmore East in the early 70s. So much fantastic music. Is there anything that stands out that really made a huge impression on you not only as a musician, but as a fan of music that you saw that you said, wow, they were really fantastic. The door opened when my mother took me to the Apollo. You know, just uh, going to the Apollo, maybe once a year, wasn't a big thing, but it was a big thing to me. First act I saw was the Ink Spots, the original Ink Spots. The second act was uh, Nat King Cole Trio. Wow. All of this just blew me away. I mean, I, I absorbed it. it, it absorbed me. And it was just a fantastic, it was all a natural thing. I mean, it was a calling and I was there and it was the way my musical life actually began. Somewhere early on, I had seen a picture of, namely the show was Cabin in the Sky with Lena Horne singing Stormy Weather. Being a movie, that was one of the first things that, that struck me. I gravitated directly to it. And it was just very meaningful. You know. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I can't imagine being able to see Nat King Cole. What an amazing voice, like velvet. He'd be playing piano, not sitting down, because he was standing up and singing, back and back, just back all over the place, you know? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It was years after that that I realized, after, after having gone to the Apollo many times after that and seen a lot of other acts, Moms, Mabley, uh, Lionel Hampton. Oh, uh, yeah. Most of those people are no longer here. Yes. But they were the footprints of my beginning. I eventually did get it, get the opportunity of working at the Apollo and being backstage. And I had no clue that backstage was so small and cramped and tight. <laughs> it lit up about four, four floors, four or five floors. And uh, all the acts had to go up and then navigate those stairs back and forth. And the showtime was probably no more than an hour because there were movies, you know, and depending on what days it was, I mean, the whole 
show program was probably no more than about a two two and a half hours maybe. And with the with the stage show, a live stage show, and even amateur hour, <laughs> it was so unbelievable that the acts would go in and out of these little cubby holes, change your clothes, and then you run up and down these stairs to be on time, and everything was perfect. Wow. When I came to know what it was really like backstage, that's when I realized, oh, God, these professional people running up and down these stairs and keeping the, t- keeping the time together and doing a show that from the audience point of view and standpoint, there was no way they could have a, any idea of how cramped a lifestyle behind the curtains was going on. But when that curtain opened up, the world opened up. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, I just can't imagine just, you know, your experiences seeing so many fantastic acts on that stage. You must have been on cloud nine when you first took the stage at the Apollo. Uh, I was because it was hard for me to believe that, what am I doing here? How, how, how did I get here? At the same time, I would say, is this what this is about? There again, from the audience, it looks like it looked like a, a huge area. But when you go backstage, remember at the Apollo, there was only, it started out with one microphone in the middle of the stage. One microphone. Wow. By the time I got there, there were many microphones around, of course. It was just a, a continuing beginning of how fantastic the world was. And I was just coming out into it. Yeah. Really. How did you get hooked up with Harry Belafonte? I got hooked up with him by... Happen chance in the sense of speaking. What it was, I was on my way to a gig one Sunday evening, and uh, I ran into one of his musicians, called the percussion player. I said, hey, Salt, listen, uh, they're holding auditions for Miriam McCaber tomorrow, Monday. So I had to get on the phone Monday morning and say, listen, I, something came up. I won't be in today. <laughs> I had a day Okay. You know, in the mail room, blah, blah, blah. So I made the audition, and uh, by the end of the week, by Friday, I got a call. Yes, you've been accepted. I don't know who else came through there to try to play with her, but I had heard her on the radio. But I had, just to let you know how premonitions, uh, how the spirit works, and uh, I have nothing to do with this. You know, but I had heard her on the radio, and uh, I didn't know who she was where she was from at that when I heard her. But when I made the audition, it was at Harry Belafonte's studio. That's when he came into the picture. However, I didn't go there to meet. I didn't, I don't, I don't recall whether I met him at that time. I didn't really meet him until afterwards because since she was already working with him. When I came into the group, I was one of the three uh, instrumentalists that formed her group. It's where guitar player and a percussionist. Wow. And we started with Harry, and then we started traveling around the world. Amazing. And how old were you at this time? By this time, I was um, in my um, early 20s. What a great age to travel the world, not only to travel the world, but to get paid to travel the world playing music. How cool. Yeah. And uh, to be honest with you, one of the good things about it also was the fact that it was, I got paid religiously properly, you know, when I, I say that because I came up through the streets playing, you know, bars, getting, you know, and sometimes you get paid, sometimes you get, well, you'll probably get $13, you know, maybe you get $10, you know, 
I didn't leave the country until I joined Miriam. And then the whole, really the whole world opened up to me. But it was just so exciting to find myself going to England. Actually, the first, I think the first place we went was uh, Scandinavia, Tivoli Gardens. Oh, yeah. And um, we went to set up and guess who was playing just across the parkway? It was um, Thatchmo. Oh, no, really? And I said, oh, no, wait a minute. Where, where am I? So I had, to, I had to go there and I caught a little bit of his act with his trumpet and his handkerchief. <laughs> <laughs> I never got, actually got the chance to meet him. And I don't know why, because we were there, I don't know, I think we were there for a week or something, or several days at any rate. There were so many acts that were there. And, uh, but he, he was the one profound one that I recall meeting, you know. So my life was, it's been a great experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, through that, you met a man that became very important in your career, a partner of yours, Ralph McDonald. The two of you began writing and you formed your own publishing company, Antesia Music. How did you decide that Ralph was your guy, that you guys were going to hook up and really make it happen? When I worked, I worked with Mary McCable up until a point, and she got married to Stokely Carmichael, and that cut her off from coming back here. Mm. Cut me off from, I had to either make the choice of staying with her someplace else or come back home. Yeah. I came back, we, were, we had already worked with Harry. There was, there was a spot there for me. So I started working with Harry. So Ralph was working with Harry. And also the other partner, Bill Eaton, William Eaton, who was um, one of Harry's folk singers. And uh, he became an arranger also. So... Ultimately, when I uh, there came a time when I left Harry, and uh, Ralph and Bill were still with him, deleting, but we stayed in touch as I went out doing other things. So Ralph had said, "Why don't we start our own publishing company?" Because I had songs that I had not that had not been published, and I didn't know anything about the publishing business or anything like that. Uh, I just knew that I could I could write a song, and he knew I could write a song. Yeah. So we came together, but he was more business mind. So ultimately, he was the business partner, and I was the art. I brought the art to it, and uh, he made the company move and happen. And of course, he was as a also as a great per- percussionist. Yeah, uh, well uh, accepted in, in the industry. I did a lot of studio work at that time, also. And William Eaton was also writing commercials. So the three of us were the nucleus. We started. Recording my songs. So let's talk about some of these great songs that you've written. Uh, one of the early big hits for you absolutely had to be Where is the Love, Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway. Ralph gave me that title, Where is the Love? Somewhere between the time we were still working with Harry, and we actually we did an album for Harry, uh, Don't Stop the Carnival, before I left. Well, it was all during this time, Ralph would, you know, he would come to me and give me, give me ideas about this, give me ideas. And I would take the idea and do something with it if I thought it would find some meaning for it. So, you know, naturally, I was good at composition. I discovered that in high school. And uh, who knew? I mean, that this is another thing that just came along with my talent flow. I automatically can put words and phrases together and, and try to find ways to shape, form it, shape it, form it, make make something of it, you know. And uh, then I would wrap some music around it. I just did what came naturally. Where is the love you said you'd give to me as soon as you were free? Where 
very good at um, uh, adding, <laughs> I'll say more than, more than his two cents, because he, he pretty much directed the, the, the way the company ran. And um, Grover Washington came in to the picture. He said, we need some, you know, some, some different kind of stuff for him, you know, instrumental stuff like that. I was able to come up with some ideas. Like also some songs, Mr. Magic. Yeah. Uh, and things, things just went on and on and, and it continued to grow. Yeah, well, you've got such a wide variety of artists. You just mentioned Mr. Magic. Amy Winehouse did a great version of Mr. Magic. What did you think about that version? Did you ever get to meet her? No, I never did. And all of a sudden, she was gone. Yeah. But I always appreciated what she did. Every day I see you, my hands were made for you. Bunch of you know, popular people at that time were coming out with things that, and I said, "Oh, have you heard that?" He, he, yeah, but what happened to the song? I said, "Oh, well, they did another kind of version. Works for me." <laughs> yeah, right. As the composer and the publisher, we still got a percentage of it. So, yeah, all of another huge song that is just so woven into the fabric of our society is just the two of us, which you won a Grammy for in 1982 for best R&B song. Congratulations so many years later. But the great Bill Withers, what an amazing songwriter himself that you wrote that with him. Yes. What was it like writing with Bill? Okay. Didn't quite go down like that. Okay. okay. Ralph McDonald, my man, he brought that title to me because he travels back and forth from Trinidad and Tobago. The airline promotional title that was you being used on BWIA Airlines. <laughs> How funny. And simple as that. But that phrase has been around since time immemorial. That phrase, just the two of us, people say it, use it at the drop of a hat, whatever it applies to. Yeah. I wrote a song on it. Bill Withers came along and he heard it. He said, you know, he stutters. You know, maybe you don't know he I didn't know that, no. No, no, if you talk to him, had you had the opportunity to talk to him, you know, the conversation would be sort of drawn out because of that. But when he opened his mouth to sing, there would be no clue to that. And to be honest with you, I don't remember the original words that I wrote, except for the chorus. The chorus was just, just the two of us. Bill Withers took the song and he created, I see the crystal raindrops fall on the window down the hall. That fantastic. I see the crystal raindrops fall and the beauty of it all is when the sun comes shining through to make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I want to spend some time with you just the two of us we can make it if we try
that that's the kind of thing I would do if I had done that. But I didn't do that for that song. But he did. He followed through right through to the end. It was really a shared situation. But the chorus is basically mine. And I'm sorry, so, so sorry that he had to leave what he did this last year. So. Yeah, that's right. Recently. Yeah. Well, you guys both got a Grammy for that one. So fantastic. Yeah, but that was not your first Grammy. You had one before that. You produced Ralph on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. It was Calypso Breakdown. It got a Grammy. That was Album of the Year, of course. I just saw that wonderful new Bee Gees documentary that's out, and they talked about how huge that record was. Millions and millions of copies. How did you get involved for that soundtrack? Actually, with this song, Bill Eaton had a lot to do with that. And uh, the fact that they used it because all of a sudden they ran out of material. And Ralph was work, was on the set with them. And he said, you need seven more minutes? I got something for you. He called over to the office and we sent that to him. But that was really one of Bill Eaton's compositions. Wow. But it, it came under the heading of uh, McDonald's Salt, the three of us. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't actually compose that. So, but uh, I take the, take the, <laughs> the plug. I had the pleasure. You have the pleasure of receiving the checks. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of car did you buy after that, William? <laughs> that's what. That's one of the few times that happened. Actually, life has been a great experience. I have no complaints at all. One of the most recognizable voices in music to me is Lou Rawls, and he recorded Trade Winds. How gratifying is it to hear these world-class artists record your songs and add their own unique flair to them? Well, he didn't have a choice. Most artists that sing and deliver the message, whatever the message is, they do what they do, and it's their personality, all of that comes out, and that's a blessing. That's one of the things that makes it, you know, Somebody who can say something, whether it be verbally or vocally, and that's that's what makes it takes it takes it someplace, takes you someplace. Unhappy people living in sin and shame, reflections of myself. Life is no easy game, and we're caught in the trade wind. Well, their interpretation, that's what gives it their own unique color they add to it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I wish I had a singing ability to do that. You know, I could sing well enough to make a demonstration. But, uh, you know, if I were a singer, then I could have sang a lot of my own songs, per se. I did do an album, by the way. But it didn't it didn't get out into the world like it could have possibly had you know other things happen, you know. But, sure. uh, well let's talk about that for a second. That was in nineteen seventy-seven. That was entitled It's So Beautiful to Be, which I think is a fantastic title. Because when you stop with the hustle and bustle of life and you just realize what a gift life is, 
That's what it is, isn't it? It's beautiful to be. You've written so many songs that have been played by so many great artists. How was it being the front man, the artist, instead of the producer, instead of just the songwriter? Scary. <laughs> you know, I came up as a bass player. Bass player is always in the back. So, you know, getting out in the front means I got to do something. <laughs> I can do something from the back, no problem, in the mix. But I'm not a front man. I never have been. To deliver the message, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to do this one album. And uh, I am satisfied with what I did with it. Uh, I was very grateful for the opportunity. Compared to all the ways that you are not, which one of these do you believe you really are to be? It is so beautiful to be. It is so beautiful to be alive in nature's paradise. I bet it was an amazing experience. It definitely was. It definitely was. Uh, it was like a one-time thing, you know, and I, I singing publicly is, is not my thing. You know, it's just not in me to do that. Yeah. You know, there are singers who have to, have to do it. I mean, everybody's different, you know. And they want to express themselves in whatever, in, in all ways that they can. My way is playing music, playing bass, playing some guitar, something like that. And being a part of, of making the music happen. The drama, the excitement, the rhythm, all of what makes the music happen. That's the part that I'm part of. That's where my forte is. Yeah. Well, and you're obviously so very talented at that. It's evident by, you know, the body of work that you've created and I, we'll all get to learn a little bit more about that because I'm to understand there's a documentary in the works about your life and career entitled Just the Two of Us. And your granddaughter Jada is working with you on this film. So where are you guys in the process and when can we expect to see this documentary? Jada's the one you need to talk to about that because that's all in her hands. Speak to us, we've got dear. We've got Jada, ladies and gentlemen. She's here. She's been <laughs> hanging out and listening, but we're going to try to pry something out of her brain right now. Jada, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thanks. Tell us about the documentary. All right. So the documentary is just going to be about him and his musical career, his life at home as well. And I would love to include other artists that have worked with him or just are inspired by him. I really want to showcase people who work behind the scenes and the importance of that and how they should get the recognition that they deserve. So I hope it's a really beautiful piece and I hope that everybody loves it. Fantastic. So it sounds like you guys are kind of in the pre-production stages right now. Is that accurate? Yes. 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 Okay. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, I, I can't wait to see it. And I know a lot of other people will love to hear the stories behind all these songs up close Absolutely. and personal. Yeah, looking forward to that. Well, William Salter, thank you so much for your time today. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. God bless
I loved hearing all those stories about the Apollo from back in the day and about how all those great songs came together. What a great career in life William Salter has had. Thanks very much for joining us today. Be well. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on Auto Trader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.